Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the man who has been a sports reporter for more than 40 years. He's covered everything from the World Series to the Stanley Cup Finals. He's an accredited official scorer for Major League Baseball in New York, contributed to Mad Dog Sports Radio, MLB, and NFL Radio. I've been fortunate to have worked on four books with him, Shoot to Thrill, The History of Hockey's Shootout, Down on the Corner, Rangers by the Numbers, and our latest, Before 94, the story of the 1978-19 79 New York Rangers. It is a pleasure to welcome my good friend Howie Carpin to 540 AM Sports Talk New York. How you doing, Howie? That was some introduction. I think I know that guy, but always great to be with you, my friend. <laughs> For sure. And it, we're going to change it up a little bit. Ryan's going to drive this interview most of the time because he's, gonna, he's got questions for both of us. So, um, you know, I've been lucky enough to work on four books with you, um, but you've written a lot more books. What number book is this for you? Well, this is number eight. I did four without you and uh, four with you, so it's split down the middle. Nice. All right, go. I'm going to hand the mic over to Ryan now, and, and he'll drive the bus for the rest of the way pretty much. All right, so here we go. Hey, Howie, how are you? Hey, Ryan, good to be with you. Good to be with you. So, Howie, as Mark mentioned, Before 94, the story of the 1978-79 New York Rangers is your fourth book together. It is an entertaining look back on one of the most beloved teams of franchise storied history. It recounts their exciting and unpredictable run to the Stanley Cup Finals with first-hand accounts of many players. It chronicles each game of the magical season. How did this project differ from your other projects with Mark? Uh, just a topic. I mean, it, it's... The books have basically, you know, been along the lines of, of our passion with sports and the teams we root for. So the format, you know, Mark, Mark's been the guy, the driving force behind these last four books because he's come up with the ideas. And he, he felt that, you know, the 78-79 team was beloved by the older Ranger fans who maybe passed down their passion down to the young players, to the, uh, their youngsters. And, uh, you know, this was a, a surprise team. It captured the city for a while, beat the big bad Islanders before they started their run. So that made that significant as well. Once the Islanders won four in a row after that, that made that victory a little more sweeter for Ranger fans, even though they didn't win any cups. But, you know, that team was beloved by the Ranger fans, and, and even to this day is still one of the most beloved teams in Ranger history. Yeah, absolutely. And Mark, same question. I guess the way it differed uh, in the project is our first book together was Shoot to Thrill, and that was the history of the NHL shootout. Um, and it wasn't as narrow-casted as you know, getting who to speak to. We spoke to GMs, players, goalies, you know, forwards. Um, the, the second book was the Kiner's Corner book. Again, you know, we kind of targeted 10 players from each decade, so that was 30 players. And then the Rangers by the Numbers was a, a lot of uh, research and, and how he really drove the bus on that one. I mean, his research on that was phenomenal. This was a little mix of both of Rangers by the Numbers and the Kiner's Corner book because I, I had to identify every single player 
player on that team. Uh, also, you know, John G. Talbot from the year before and try and locate all these guys and get interviews. So th- that's the way it differed a little bit. It was more of a mix of Rangers by the numbers, because Howie did tons of research on each game, and then I wanted to do the interview. I wanted to get mostly every single player from that team. So that- that's the way it differed for me. Yeah, and so we'll get back into that, where the interviews take place and, and the balance between the statistical numbers and-, and how you guys you know wanted to recount every game. Um, what about this was diff- uh, particular Rangers team, as opposed to the 2013-14 team that made it to the finals, inspired you to write a book about it, a team that I identify very closely with, Howie. The main thing was they hadn't won a cup yet at that point. You know, before the, obviously there was 94 before the 2014 team, but that team in 78-79, you know, the drought was up to 39 years at that point, and, uh, you know, no one knew when it was going to end, and it took another 15 after that. So the fact that they hadn't won yet was the main thrust of, of, uh, at least I believe, for the storyline there. Yeah, and Mark, for you, was there something personal about this team when you were in the middle of, you know, your fanship? I know now you cover the team and you've been covering the sport for a long time. Yeah, for sure. This was the team that kind of cemented my love for the team because growing up on Long Island, obviously, um, that 75 series where the Islanders, you know, in the infancy knocked the Rangers out in the preliminary round, that 79 was payback because the Islanders were the, you know, they were on the cusp of winning four straight after this series. Um, yeah, and there are just so many characters and so many guys, you know, that still to this day when I see certain numbers, I think of that 78-79 team. And, and the difference between the, the 2013, like Howie said, you know, the Cup had already been won. This was the closest, you know, in my lifetime that the Rangers had come. And, you know, I was 19 years old, so I was really able to understand it. So, yeah, I, I have a, a true affinity for that team. And, and most people of our age feel the same about that team. And in, and in interviewing the players with it, was it a special connection when, you know, it, it just hit a certain, you know, soft spot for you? Oh, for sure. I mean, I've been lucky enough to interview a lot of the guys in the past, so I, I had a good, you know, nucleus to pull from. But then as I kept on tracking guys down and tracking guys down, and, and they loved that team. The, the teammates, they, they formed a brotherhood. They really did. And so, sure, every, every interview was, is, was better than the next. So for Howie, uh, what was something you didn't know about a player or a particular game that you came across? Uh, I don't know if I have anything off the top. Um, I, 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 you know, I knew about the impact Bobby Sheehan had. I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't realize the impact Mike McEwen had on the team. That, that probably was the most startling thing to me. I didn't remember it. I knew he had some impact. I didn't realize he had that good a year in the regular season. So I, I would think off the top of my head that would probably be an answer for you. And for Mark? Yeah, same thing. I, I, I totally did not remember the fact that as a defenseman back in a day where, you know, yes, there were, there were the Pavans, but, but Mike McEwen scored 20 goals as yeah. a defenseman that year. And the other thing I wasn't aware of, I knew the impact that Bobby Sheehan had on the team. I was not aware of how good a sense of humor he had, which was actually important at the time. And, um, and I was also, Pat Hickey was a, a phenomenal source of information as well. And, and both of their, if you, if you happen to get a copy of the book, and you should, uh, both of their senses of humor clearly come across in the interviews that Mark and uh, Howie were able to do with them. So for Mark, how many members of the team did you actually speak with for this well, project? We spoke to every single living member with, that had you know, played more than you know, five games. We even spoke to Frank Beaton and uh, Andre Dory, who played two games each. With the exception of Pierre Plant, the, Pierre Plant was you know he basically was the Holy Grail at one point because he was the only person re- really 
didn't get to speak to directly. Every other person at one time or another over the last couple of years I've had the opportunity to speak to and, you know, re- you know retouched, the, you know, got in touch with a lot of them, and it was a lot of fun trying to track them down. That was, that, that's a lot of the part of a book project as well. That's a lot of fun when you, you search and search and then you get a number. You know, Bobby Sheehan took a long time to track down, but it was also great speaking to him. So, Howie, how did you go about picking and choosing what parts of the interviews to use for the book? Uh, I tried to find where they would apply in the right, you know, within the games themselves, instead of like just having their own sections. I, you know, Mark did quite a job. He had a lot to work with, so he had to, you know, we couldn't put everything in. And also, when you know, when reading the the verbatims and the texts, or you know, the actual text itself, with this uh, computer setup, you had to, you know, some of these guys have accents, and you know, and, and their English comes out on the computer a little weird. But beyond that, you know, it was just trying to tie things in, especially in the playoffs when they talked about the Islanders series and the Flyer series and the certain events that happened within those chapters, because those are the most significant chapters in the book, the playoffs and the final, you know, and obviously the chapter against the Islanders. So most of the quotes came from that, and also in the beginning when we were describing how Fred Shiro got the job and how everything, you know, everything developed from the year before, and then Mark found that story on the baby being born in Madison Square Garden the year before and things like that. So the quotes were pretty much stacked in the front and the, toward the end with little snippets in the middle at, at the games. Like with Andre Dory, we pinpointed where he played, and he was, a, he was from Montreal. So his second game that he played with the Rangers was in Montreal. He got hurt in the first game pretty badly, but he didn't want to miss that game in Montreal and he said he would have been in a hospital bed to miss it. So quotes from him were in that game in Montreal and things like that where they fit. So did you have any particular questions in mind for the specific players, Mark? Like yeah, when you were well, breaking it down? Yeah, well, Howie and I originally when we were talking about this book, we kind of laid out the, the format, and it was, you know, the end of, we wanted to start with that 78, 70, uh, the 77, 78 end of the season, the playoffs. So we wanted to try and get a hold of John Gee Talbert, which I was able to, and then we were also able to speak to um, John Ferguson Jr. John Ferguson's dad, you know, John Ferguson was the GM, so mm. it was his dad, and, you know, he was old enough to have recollection. So for them, yes, there were very specific questions. There were uh, you know, in speaking to some of the players along the way, there was some talk about a riff in the locker room between Roger Bear and Phyllis Bezito, so there was some line of questioning for that. Um, then there were obviously specific things that happened leading up to the season, the acquisition of Anders and Ulf, so there was a lot of, you know, questions of every player about them and what they meant to the team. Then, you know, there's another chapter of Dave Maloney being the captain, so those were very specific. Then for all the other players, there were certain games that we wanted to talk to them about and, and, and different events that we found out during the research. So for some players, yes, there were very specific sets of questions, and others it kind of just um, organically grew from there. So, Howie, as, as Mark had just set up, um, you guys set up the book with the end of the previous season with the preliminary round loss to the Sabres, which led to the firing of GM John Ferguson and head coach John Gee Talbot. Uh, what were some things that you learned about John Gee Talbot's one season as head coach? Probably what Mark was just talking about, that he, when Mark interviewed him, he admitted that he could have done more to maybe, you know, 
heal the rift between Espo and Gilbert and that he should have done a few more things during that season. It was a precarious situation because Sonny Werblin came in and he wanted to clean house. So, you know, who knows what would have happened if they would have beat the Sabres in that playoff series. Obviously, history told us different. Uh, that, that, that was probably the main thing. And, and, and that also that Ferguson was a little bitter at the end when uh, the, the Rangers let him go, that there was some bitterness there. All right, Mark, so Howie had kind of set this up with the uh, little preview of what had happened at that last playoff game in the 78 season, but the Rangers had one playoff game in that 78 season. What was memorable about that the, game? The one, the one home playoff game. So I was actually at that game, and, <laughs> really? and that might be one of the reasons why you know it was important. <laughs> you know, I told Howie, let's start with that game. It was up until the 94 Cup. Um, it was probably one of the greatest hockey games I had ever been to. It was, you know, you know, it was the best of three, so it was game two of the preliminary round. All right, so th- at the end of the third period, with the game tied, Phil Esposito gets into a fight, uh, which didn't really happen that much. And you know, so he's not there to start the overtime. The Rangers score a goal early in overtime. It's waved off. Uh, I think maybe 30 seconds later, the Sabres score a goal to seemingly win and eliminate the Rangers, and that goal is waved off. Then Don Murdoch wins the game with an overtime goal. Now, you know, I had an interview set up with Don Murdoch, so I wanted to, you know, refresh my memory from that game. You know, granted, a lot of years ago, and, you know, sometimes over time, things get cloudy, but, yep, Esposito got into the fight. Yes, waved off. Yes. But, uh, you know, I looked at the, the newspaper from that day, and the front page of the newspaper was basically this guy holding a baby, and it says, you know, sudden life at Madison Square Garden. And I started reading the story, and this woman gave birth at Madison Square Garden. And I start doing the research, and, and lo and behold, I get a hold of these people, and I talk to them, and they tell me this whole story of how their daughter was born you know, in Madison Square Garden. <laughs> and very few people at the Garden, you know, knew about it. Like, Ranger guys, beat guys that covered the Rangers, I was saying, you know, there was a baby born here, and they didn't. Um, it also turns out that her half-brother is uh, Jay Grossman, who is an agent who had two of his clients won the Stanley Cup in 94 as Rangers, and Brian Leach and, and, and Zuboff. So it was very ironic, the, the full circle, and it, it was just a great story. They were a, a blast to talk to. So it, it's a very cool setup for the next season. So I just want to get into this for a second. What a crazy story this is. Was there any air, like you said, the beat writers missed this, but was there any air of something going on? Because there, there were security staff being rushed up to grab the doctor from his spot to bring him down. He's the a ba- dentist. Yeah, the he, dentist, yeah. No, so, so no. basically she had gone to the doctor and she, you know, there were season ticket holders. The doctor says, you're not due for two weeks. She went to the bathroom at the end of the third period. Um, <clears throat> you know, there was an attendant there, saw that you know, this something's not up. She got the medical staff. The woman told them where the husband sat. He went up, and, and, and the security guard said, you know, come with me. And he, he didn't know at first. He said, no, no, take your jacket. As soon as he said, take your jacket, he knew something was up. And she actually gave birth in between the Ranger locks. So guys were coming off in the third period to get ready for the overtime, and she's giving birth. And, and I think she, the, the way she put it, you know, there she was in whole, all her glory. Yeah. She was a rip to talk to, a- <laughs> absolute rip. But they actually, when they renovated the garden, they got the two seats that, you know, that, you know, they sat in that night. She actually didn't, she left her ticket at home that day. She was such in a rush to get to the garden. <laughs> wow. And the usher let her in. She's like, he said, like any person that's coming to a game in this shape obviously had tickets. You, you, so go. But so they have the unused ticket like framed right over the two seats of the day that their child was born. 
and and per, you know perhaps um, something odd that many people thought uh, the, the baby should be named after Madison, but they um, they kept within their religious views and and uh, named it after their uh, their family, named the daughter Leah. But um, moving forward, so. Howie, the loss of that game set off a chain of events that would shape the following season. Can you share some of those moves? Yeah, well, Sonny Werblin came in to run the Garden, so he was running the Rangers and the Knicks. And uh, he immediately wanted a change, so he fired uh, John Ferguson and John G. Talbot, but he was in the process of trying to lure Fred Shiro from Philadelphia because there were rumors toward the end of the season that Shiro wanted out. And uh, Sonny Werblin was an entrepreneur. He, wa- he knew he knew big time entertainment. I mean, he was the one who who signed Joe Namath to that controversial contract, beat out the NFL. So he wanted a big name in there. And then Shiro would have, you know, he felt was perfect. But they, you know, obviously that uh, to get Shiro, they were going to have to give up some kind of compensation. So they gave up their first round pick in the 1978 draft, which turned into Ken Linsman. And the rest is history. I mean, uh, Shiro came in and Mike Nicholas. Was was brought Mike Nicoluk was brought in as an assistant, a highly you know, valued assistant coach. The you know, management team changed, and and so did their team on the ice. So one of the moves that was actually in process, I believe, by Ferguson and Talbot was um, the acquisition of Nielsen and Hedberg from the WHA. Can you explain a little bit about how they were brought in? Yeah, uh, Ferguson was the guy who, like, like you said, brought them in. Uh, Again, Sonny Werblin, uh, I don't know, I don't think Werblin was there yet when they started the process, but they felt that there were two players there that they could snag to really make their team better. These guys were thriving in the old WHA, playing with Bobby Hull. They were stars in Sweden. The Rangers saw star power there, so they wanted to bring them in, and Ferguson was the guy really responsible for getting them, and then he was gone after that, which was kind of a strange set of circumstances. Yeah, and a guy, Werblin, who wasn't afraid to make a splash, reportedly spent $10,000 to put the ice down on a dormant uh, garden ice so that he could show off the skating skills of these players. And and just to introduce him, absolutely. And and plus the fact that they... At the last minute, you know, the, the you know, uh, Anders and Ulf had agreed to a certain amount and they were going to sign the contract, and they gave him more money because they were afraid that if, if the agent went back and said, listen, they're going to sign with the Rangers, they didn't want it to be matched. So they gave more, and this way they knew that they, they weren't going to go back to the WHA. And it ends up being the, cha- the name of the chapter, the Frank Sinatra song, but um, a funny anecdote about Hedberg's uh, interest in coming to the team. He said, first of all, it was... It, I think it was first the money, then the others. But then it was that Frank Sinatra song. He felt if they could make it there, they could make it anywhere. Yeah, and he said he said that was the key. He said, you know, it was all well and good to have success in the WHA, but that song kept ringing in his head. And, you know, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. And uh, it, lots of good stuff about Anders and Ulf that people don't know. It's a great chapter as well. So, Howie, you guys break down the season into months and then each game, and then each game within that month. What research tools did you use to fill in all those details? Well, you can get a lot of newspapers. Mark had access to a lot of the old newspapers, and so did I. Those are your best sources, you know, because those clear up a lot of things. Over the years, we found that, in re- especially in research, there's a lot of inaccuracies. Like on ho- HockeyReference.com is a great site, but they have some factual inaccuracies from past seasons. So you getting to the actual newspaper accounts, which are, a lot of them are wire accounts which show up in most of the newspapers, but, you know, it's an account from somebody who was there. That's where you get the little tidbits during the regular season, and they felt that you know, if we're going to look at this season, we should examine 
examine every game because the regular season was so important, especially more important than it is now even because of the way the playoffs were set up. So, you know, that, that was the fun part, looking back at some of the games and, and stroking some memories of that season from the regular season. Like, even on a negative note, when Brian Trottier scored five goals against the Rangers uh, right before Christmas Eve that year, and then somebody in Minnesota did the same later on. So, you know, nice little interesting tidbits, and people like to read about games that you don't really you know read about a whole lot. Yeah, and it, as for me, it's someone who's reading this, born in 93, so even before 94, the book title is, is actually pretty pretty uh, relevant there. Um, but yeah, getting to read into these games, you guys have details of, of who took the penalty when and what it led to that power play goal, and so it goes beyond just having the stats, and, and something that you know Mark said was similar to Rangers by the Numbers, but this book goes even deeper and really allows you to get the story of the full season. Um, yeah, I mean, and we got something from every every regular season game. I mean, there were some games you just couldn't get too much information. You were lucky to get the box score. But, but you know, for, for most of them, we were able to get information, and they tried to, even in the losing efforts, tried to list the Ranger goal scorers to let people know who was scoring. You know, so, it, it, you know, I'm happy with it. I, I love researching that kind of stuff. I'm, as Mark told you, I've been around like 40 years, you know, just as a professional, and that, that goes along with my fandom. So, you know, looking back at these old games really uh, brings a lot of good memories back. So one that might not bring the best memories uh, happens to be in Chapter 10, the month of February, which is entitled Potvin Sucks, uh, you know, known infamously through Madison Square Garden. Which details of the origin of that chant that lives to this day can you tell our audience about February 25th, 1979? Well, as everybody knows, it's <laughs> or at least, you know, as all the Ranger fans know and the fans at the Garden, Islander fans too, you know, the chant, the chant originated on February 25th, as you said, and it was a hit by Potvin on Ulf Nielsen that everybody involved felt wasn't dirty. But the Ranger fans certainly took exception to that because they saw there was a chance, you know, for this team to maybe win the Stanley Cup. They were going along real well. Nielsen was having a terrific season. And boom, he's gone. You know, gets a broken leg, and he's gone for the rest of the regular season. And then, and it, and it happened to be the Islanders and Denny Potvin. And as it, you know, the rivalry was hot at that point, really heating up. And uh, that just spurred on this chant that that developed as a like like a band song. We found out that somebody wrote it back in like the forties, and then the Ranger fans adopted it into this chant that that is still heard to this day. So, in your guys' opinion, was the hit dirty? Because Potvin, in the book, accounts that he doesn't believe it was. Nielsen also says it wasn't a no. dirty hit. So, right. yeah, well, you know, listen, in the rivalry, use whatever you can take. And, yeah, yeah. so this day, yeah, it's still a dirty hit. All right, yeah, <laughs> as a Ranger fan, we'll go with that, right. yeah. All right, so, Mark, which players were most difficult to track down and which did you enjoy speaking to the most? That's a, a great question. So, uh, Bobby Sheehan was very difficult to track down. You said he was the uh, Holy Grail, right? No, no, Pierre Plant, oh, Pierre Plant was the Holy Grail. became the Holy Grail. I couldn't get him, and I really wanted to speak to any guy who played more than 10 games. Um, Dean Talifus was tough to track down. I found it. You know, there's about five or six guys from that team that are on social media, so they were real easy to, to get. Howie and I are in the press box, so, you know, when you network, a lot of guys know a lot of guys. Um, 
the other guy that was very, very difficult to, to track down, and it, and it becomes like almost uh, like a game. So Dean Turner only played two games that season, um, only two games for the Rangers, period. He was traded to the Rockies the next year for Barry Beck. Um, but he became my mission, you know, like you said, you know, you go through LinkedIn, you go through things, and then, then you try to find through Wikipedia who his family is, and it turns out that his son had run for government office in Michigan. So I was able to track his son down. I didn't know it was his son. It was just, uh, I, I figured it was a relative. It was the same hometown, whatever. Sent him an email. He said, yes, that's my dad. You know, he sent my information to his dad. Then his dad got in touch with me. So he was difficult to, t- to track down, but I got him. The guy, that's all for a player who played two games. Because yeah. the goal was really to try and speak everyone. to every single person that played for that game. It's, it's not been, the, no one's written a book on this team, which, the, you know, and every guy that you speak to because we have a where are they now and, and so many of these guys have gone on to success you take a look at what Phil Esposito's done with Tampa Bay you take a look at what Don Maloney has done in his body of work GMs yeah. and very different players with the Coyotes the right? Coyotes yeah. and, and you know all over but you know, Doug Sotar has been a coach um, uh, Dave Farish has been a coach a lot of these guys have gone on Nick Fatiu you know, has developed lots of players, I think 45 in total that have made it to the NHL. So it was important to try and track down everyone. But the guys that were the most, in, for me, they were all enjoyable to talk to, but the most animated for sure, Pat Hickey, Mike McEwen, um, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, Bobby Sheehan, Nick Fatiu. Nick Fatiu told, and I don't, I, we don't want to give away the whole book because then no one will buy it, but Nick Fatiu tells a great, you know, the essence of Bobby Sheehan in one, like, 30-second story, which is just priceless. So that's a great story, too. Okay. All right, so, Howie, the book details each game of the playoffs right through the finals, looking back at how important that semifinal was against the Islanders and solidifying the rivalry that you said had already gotten started. Yeah, that just set it, set it into another gear because it already, it already was lit with the 75 playoff win by the Islanders in overtime in a preliminary round. You know, uh, Jay uh, Parisi... Uh, got Zach's father got the game winner early in the overtime, 11 seconds in, so that the rivalry was set. And then the Rangers come back four, you know, four years later, and the Islanders are being pegged to be this great team, which they eventually became, but they weren't there yet. They had lost in 78 to the Maple Leafs, I think, on Lonnie McDonald's goal in overtime. I think it was that year, but you know, it was very important for them. It was a big deal for the Rangers. They, you know, they had a little more pressure on them because of the gap with the, with the Cup. The Islanders were the new kids on the block. They were pushing the Rangers for, you know, control of the town, so to speak. So, you know, this was huge. I, I, I didn't, you didn't have cable TV. You couldn't sit home and watch the games like you can now. I had to go out to a place every night to watch the game. And six nights, I went out and and watched every game. Yeah, and and you, when you speak to the players, the amount of buzz that that series created back in the time when there was no social media, there was no you know cable TV, but it, it, it electrified the city for sure. So the 78-79 Rangers lost to the Canadians in five games in the finals, just as the 2013-2014 Rangers lost to the Kings in five games. Were there any similarities between the teams you guys found? Start with Howie. Uh, I, uh, well, 
and, and Henrik Lundqvist, with all their respect, is a better goaltender than John Davidson. But Davidson was playing at a very high level at that point of his career. Uh, you know, they lost. I think the overtime. They lost a big overtime game to the Canadians in Game Three, and uh, they lost. A, they lost a couple overtime games to the Kings that really killed their chances as well. It seemed to be the same story. They just couldn't get that big goal to get an overtime win, which they did in '94. So if you want to compare '79 and '24. I would say just tough losses to, you know, the 79 team lost to a great Canadian team. That was the fourth win in a row for them. They had 10 Hall of Famers on the roster. Nine of them played against the Rangers. You know, a little different than those L.A. Kings teams or the L.A. Kings team that they played, which could have a couple of Hall of Famers, but certainly was not the same category as that Montreal team. Yeah, and the thing is, with this, you know, you take a look. You had a team that was bounced from the preliminary round the year before. Your new head coach, granted a, a very good coach, but the expectations, even though you got Anders and Ulf, the expectations were not to have a cup run. That Ranger team, the expectations built and built and built. And, you know, both, you know, the surrounding kid, John Davidson carried that 78-79 team to a final on his back. And to a man, the Rangers feel that had he been healthy, they would have stand, stood a better chance mm-hmm. against the Canadians. But, um, to de- you know, and, and as Howie said also, uh, there was a lot more pressure on that 78-79 team because the drought ha- had been going. The drought, the, the drought was over on that 13-4 team, so there wasn't that added, you know, the curse and this and that. So those were the differences. But, uh, you know, both goalies did carry the way for both those teams. Okay, so something a little bit fun here at the end. So Dave Maloney in, in the forward, which I'm sure you guys had a really good time getting with Dave yeah. and, and how um, involved he was with the project. But Dave Maloney mentions the team being the toast of the town and whooping it up at Studio 54 without incriminating anyone. Do you guys have any stories about the, the team and their off-ice antics? Uh, well, there, there's, <laughs> there's a, a quote. Well, you know, there are be, you know, I think for the most part, the guys never really wanted to reveal that there was a faction of the team. They were young. I mean, they were very, yeah. very young. And Phil Esposito um, on this show actually said to this day he blames Fred Shiro for not winning against the Canadians because he wanted to get them out of town. He wanted them you know, not to stay in Montreal. It's too big of a party town back then. Um, and you know, I think like two, three weeks after Phil Esposito was on the show, we had asked Ron Duguay about it. And Ron Duguay said, basically, he said, well, he said, after game one, I didn't get back to my hotel room till 6 a.m. in the morning. He said, but they had been doing that all season long. He said, and he felt it finally caught up with them, but he said he's a much better dancer because of it. <laughs> so as the years rolled on, you hear less and less stories of that. You know, Walter Kachuk kind of alluded to the fact that they never really got into specifics. But it seemed like they were a partying hard team, for sure. Howie? Yeah, I mean, uh, we really didn't deal with that a whole lot. That right. came naturally in, in the interviews. Right. Didn't really get any of that Studio 54 stuff. Although us, us older guys can remember, the, you know, the Sassoon commercials and all that kind of stuff, which came a little later on. But, uh, yeah, we had heard the stories about that they were partiers. And, in fact, in, you know, Phil Esposito, as Mark mentioned, felt they should have beat the Canadians. He felt they shouldn't have stayed in Montreal. He felt this young team was very impressionable. They, they may not have been ready after, you know, they, they kind of let up a little after game one against a great team. He was worried about it. That's the only thing I can really think of when it comes to, like, that off-ice stuff. And Don Murdoch's, um, you know, do you, do you believe that his, um, you know, well-documented um, 
troubles with the law and the suspension, if that had anything to do with it, the, the hush-hush. No, no, because the, the when, when, no, no, because when, when, no, no, because when murder came back, he, you know, he, you know, he said on here and then in subsequent, you know, that, you know, people don't know what he really went through. It was horrible for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, so. He was yeah, 21. No, yeah, yeah, he was 21. And right. He said he made one mistake. So, no, I don't think he, I don't think he had an influence on it because he wasn't there in, in, until January. Mm-hmm. He was not, you know, and, and he came back. He certainly was not part of any party. You know, he didn't want to risk yeah. his career at that point. Got it. All right. So in closing up, I just wanted to finish up with a Fred Shiro question. The, the, the coach who comes over after two Stanley Cups with the Flyers had a very unorthodox kind of approach to some of these, you know, the ways that he was going about. He kind of let, like, as you said, with the team, you know, staying out late, they let them, you know, police themselves in a way. They ran their own uh, practices as optional practices that became, you know, not so optional. Um, rubbing Mike McEwen's back after a frustrating shift. And more than once in the book, players have claimed that they would have gone through a wall for yeah. this guy. So what do you think he really had the impact on, on this Rangers team? Howie, you want to take that one first? Uh, his impact was enormous. I mean, they, they, they had a totally changed outlook uh, as a team. I mean, it, he, brought, he, he molded some of these guys. He was, in, he was inspirational for them. You know, as, we, as they said, they'd go through a wall for him. And, and I think right there, that's the impact that he had on that squad. Yeah, I, I think, I, you know, I do not think I appreciated Fred Chiro as a coach as much as I should have. And speaking to these guys, I realized what a great coach he was. And, and you know, uh, to a man, every single guy loved playing for him, for sure. Mm-hmm. And somewhat hands-off. He let his assistant coach kind of run yep. the practice. was one of the first guys to have an assistant coach in the NHL. And one of the first guys to also name such a young player as a captain, captain. which is something that we now see so much. Yes. All right, so, Mark, where can people get a hold of this great new book? You can get it on Amazon, where everyone can get books these days. <laughs> That's basically, you know, Amazon is the place, for sure. You know, either, you know, Google Howie's name, Google my name, or just go to Amazon and put in Before 94, and, and the book will come up. It's also available in the Kindle version as well.